Church, our great hope is that he has come, and he is coming again. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in between his two advents, rejoicing in the faithfulness of God to send his son and in the promise of hope that he shall return again. I'm glad you could join with us this morning again as Paul uh, welcomed you. If you're visiting here with us with family member or friend, we're so glad that not only you could be present with us, but uh, our greatest prayer and our deepest joy is that you would be refreshed upon hearing the good news of the gospel this morning, the reason for the hope that we have. My name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use one of the ones that should be somewhere near you and the seat back in front of you. It may also be helped to know that the portion of Scripture that we're considering this morning you'll find on page 805 in that particular hardback that's there in front of you. Luke chapter 2, considering this morning verses 1 through 20. Let's hear God's word together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Would you pray with me? Father, our great desire and great need this morning is that we, with these men, would be those who glorify and praise you for what we have heard, for what we have seen, for what's been told to us. Lord, we thank you that you have preserved this account through your word, that you have seen fit by your spirit to not only deliver this message, but to preserve it for our eyes and ears this morning. And so 
We ask that by the ministry of word and spirit, you would cause us to be found rejoicing and resting in all that is given to us in Christ. We pray that you would help us by your word to see, though these things may be familiar to us, the amazement of what you have done in giving your son for sinners. We pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would cause our hope and our great expectation to be found in you and your promise to us. We pray that we would know much of the great rejoicing that is to be ours upon accepting, resting, and receiving this Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we do now come to one of the more familiar Christmas passages containing some of the most familiar Christmas words. The sort of words that have been in movies, cartoons, set within dramas, maybe even some holiday performances in recent weeks. The sort of portion of scripture that we turn to often. Perhaps the portion of scripture that you read Christmas morning. All of this familiarity for good reason, because of what it contains, because of of what it says. But there is a challenge that oftentimes the passages and the words that become the most familiar actually become the most misunderstood. That in our familiarity with them, we skim our eyes over them, we assume, we understand, we move forward, and perhaps misunderstand the very significance of what has been said. What I'm getting at is to speak about peace on earth and joy to the world is hardly a subject that any citizen of earth would object to. Imagine if we dispersed from here this morning and began taking a a poll, going house to house, block by block, neighborhood to neighborhood, city by city. I doubt we would find any this morning if asked, Are you content with the amount of peace that you have? Or are you seeking more joy in your life? I doubt there would be any who would object to the great need for peace and for joy. But does our desire for those things reflect the Bible's announcement as to where we find those things? These terms that are very familiar to us, peace and joy, Are they actually anchored in the very announcement of what's given to us in Scripture? And perhaps even you, if you're here this morning, even in this past week, you've been asking for greater peace. Peace in your home, peace in various relationships, peace in circumstances, or peace in the unknown of future. Even longing for joy, especially in this season, the sort of joy that's true joy, that isn't eroded by circumstances. Even finding yourself asking, if only this wasn't happening, then I would be content. Well, friend, if that sounds familiar, then you, as well as me, need to lean in and hear what the scriptures announce. Pay attention, because this passage shows us that joy and peace is the very essence of good news and what God has come to give in the giving of his son. And so our meditation this morning is going to be a bit briefer since we're filling the morning with baptisms and the Lord's Supper. But we need to consider this morning what this news is and what this news does. What this news is is found in verses 10 through 12. It has everything to do with the angel's announcement. Fear not. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. As we give our attention to this angel's announcement, notice just exactly what he says. 
He says it is good news. Now, the shepherds had pretty good reason to be afraid. I imagine this night began like many other nights, keeping watch over their flock, but suddenly something interrupted it, something so bright, so glorious, so ominous, that they themselves had reason to be afraid, but they are quickly set at ease saying, no, this is good news. Now, to set the context of the angels' announcements, the substance of it as news, to hear that everything what the angel has to say is news, I wonder if that sounds kind of flat to you, that it doesn't sound very glamorous to say I have news, that it doesn't sound revolutionary. Perhaps you might think it doesn't even sound very fitting when talking about Jesus, because oftentimes the thought of listening to the news, especially if this is your parents' decision when you happen to be in the living room or in the car and you hear that familiar tone that the news is coming on, perhaps it begins to sound like boring or irrelevant Or sometimes the news is just appropriate for background noise when you're getting chores done or working in the kitchen. But the reality is, if we are going to understand that this is good news, we have to understand that it is most certainly news. One of the most foundational ideas that we could ever lay hold of is that the gospel is news. The message of what God has done in Christ for us, the declaration of what he says as to how we can be rescued, is most certainly only good if it is, in fact, news. Let me explain. Advice. We love to give it, and we love to hear it. Advice is not good news, because it's simply information that you could take or leave. You can put this into practice, or you can choose not to. But the value of that advice is only valuable insofar as you do it. The good news is not rules. Rules are essential, they're necessary, but they're not good news. Rules have to be kept. Rules have to be obeyed. And most importantly, rules are only beneficial if you, in fact, keep them. The good news is not a pattern to imitate. Because the value of the pattern depends upon your ability to follow that pattern and to repeat it faithfully. In contrast to advice and rules and patterns, the gospel is first and foremost news of what the Son of God has done. What God has done for us in Christ despite us and apart from us. And so this tremendously good news announces and then communicates a certain joy and a sense of relief that advice and rule-keeping and pattern-following can never produce because it tells you of what God has done in Christ. The heartbeat of the celebration of Christian Christian gathering is news. The reason that we're here this morning is because of news. The reason that we sing with great joy is because of news. The reason that two are going to be baptized this morning is because good news has come to them. The news of what God has done in Christ. So we must say, first of all, it is good news. But it is also good news, according to the angel, for all people. The angelic birth announcement concerning this baby born of royal lineage is delivered to whom? Shepherds. 
We know that. Now, in that day, shepherds were considered to be at really the lowest rung of the social ladder. Their work kept them away from the temple and the synagogue as it made them ceremonially unclean. They were also considered by reputation usually to be untrustworthy. So this was not the poster child men of those that you would say, this is who the news should go to first in order to spread it to others. If you were building a list according to your marketing campaign as who you want to be, the one who would receive this news first, most likely you and I would not choose these men. And yet the angels come to these men and say, good news for all people. I imagine that part carried a little greater significance to these particular men. Shepherds, good news for all people. Because this news comes and it's given not to the insiders, but essentially we could say to the outsiders, to the outcasts. This is good news of great joy for all people. It's for all types. Not just royalty and elites, but all people. It's for all tribes and tongues. Not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. Not just for a particular type of reputation, but for all reputations. This news is for the honest and for the dishonest, for the champions and the failures, for the wealthy, for the poor, for the favored, for the dishonored. The good news is intended to be joyfully proclaimed in all the earth because it is for all the earth. And let's remember, just because our Bibles faithfully proclaim the doctrines, the doctrine of God's electing will to save, that does not hinder us in any way from pleading with others to repent and believe. We should be able to cheerfully proclaim with great joy and all confidence, Christ died for sinners. Christ's death is sufficient to save. Repent, believe. The fact that this good news is for all people is the heartbeat for all evangelism and for all missions. Because we believe it's not just for a particular people that look like me. It's for all people. It's good news for all people, and so we go to all people. In fact, this morning, if you can hear the sound of my voice, that means it's not too late for you. This good news has come to you as well. For whatever reason that you happen to be here this morning, God, in his sovereign and in his mercy, he acts in such a way that this good news is being proclaimed to you as well, that you might hear that it is most certainly to be heard by all people. It's news, it's good news for all people, and it's about a person. This birth announcement has radical implications for your life. Let me put it like this. It's the difference between coming home and hearing, hey, guess what? Your third cousin's roommate best friend is pregnant. And coming home through that same door and hearing, guess what? I'm pregnant. That birth announcement hits you a little differently than the first one because of its relevance, because of who that particular baby is. And this birth announcement here is about a particular person. It's about a Christ child and it's good news, and it's significant news because of who he is. Because who he is should hold eternal weight for you. Do you notice the threefold name given to this Jesus? 
He's Savior. He's Christ. He's Lord. Think about what those words mean. Don't just gloss over them. To hear that he's Savior, it implies that he's come to rescue us. From what? Well, certainly from our sin. But the real danger behind our sin, friend, the real threat that lies behind your sin is not just what it could do to your reputation. It's not simply what it could do to what others' opinion of you might be. Its real threat is not only how bad you feel about yourself for that. The real threat of sin, friend, is the wrath of God against your sin. To hear that Jesus is a Savior in Matthew's announcement, to save his people from their sins. Yes, most certainly. And the Savior comes to save not only from the guilt of sin, but from the penalty of sin, which is God's righteous wrath against our sin. God sends his Son to save us against his just righteousness. Not only is he Savior, we're told he's the Christ. That means he is the one that we've been waiting for. Ever since the line of Seth first began to develop, we have been waiting for the one promised to crush the head of the serpent and to rescue God's people and to restore God's creation. The Messiah, the Christ. To hear that this baby is the Christ is to say this is the one that we've been waiting for for all these generations. He is the long-awaited deliverer. And he's not only Savior in Christ, he's Lord meaning he is the king, he is the one who is going to defeat all of our enemies, provide for us forever, the promised champion who would go out and do battle in our place, return victorious, bind up our wounds, and provide for us for all eternity. The thrust of the angel's message is that this baby has come and he's for you. That's what he tells the shepherds. He is intended to be embraced by you. He's intended to be welcomed by you. He is intended to be rejoiced over by you. And for all who do receive him, he becomes your priest, your prophet, your king. In all of the offices that he has come to fill and to fulfill, he becomes that for you, Christian. That he is most certainly your priest interceding and mediating upon your behalf. Not only representing you to the Father, but continuing to to intercede before you, before the Father on your behalf. He's your advocate, your reconciler. He's the prophet who speaks truth into your life. Illuminating your darkness and helping you in the ignorance that he comes and he speaks through his word. And he is the king who conquers us in our rebellion, who protects us from our enemy and provides for us for all eternity. So it's at this point that the announcement becomes not just news, but good news because of what it says about this baby that has been born. What this news is, but what does this news do? Back at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you, that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is 
pleased. The gospel demands a response. And the only fitting response is shouts of praise. The kind of praise where you have to take a deep breath before you exhale in a shout of praise. Because it's going to be that loud. Because it's going to be that good. Because apparently one angel is sufficient to deliver the news, but now... An army, a heavenly host, is what is required to rightly respond to this news. Glory to God in the highest. That's that's what that means when a multitude of heavenly hosts appear in the blackness of that night, praising and glorifying God. Now, this news has two great purposes, according to this angelic praise. And these two great purposes are inseparably tied together. Glory to God and peace to men. What this news does is that it is intended to bring glory to God and peace to men. Look at what the angels say. This news brings glory. Now, glory is one of those other words we could lump in with peace and joy that get used so often, but sometimes it loses its punch. Glory means weightiness. Glory means substance, worth, majesty, splendor. Glory to God. And in the salvation of sinners, God is revealed as glorious. In the salvation of sinners, we see something of his worthiness, of his splendor, of his majesty, of his awe. For when the angel's announcement is that a royal deliverer has come, he's the long-awaited Christ, he's the promised Messiah, the one to rescue God's people from the curse of sin and the judgment to come, And to say that God has provided the means for sinners to be saved is just another way to display the wondrous glory of God. Why should God save? Certainly, we don't deserve his grace, but only judgment. Glory to God. And how does God save? Not by just waving a magic wand and saying, You're saved, but by the sending of his son into humiliation, who would be betrayed, crucified, died, and be buried, and rise again to save his people. And we say to that, glory to God. Not only that he does save, but in how he saves. Christian, you have been chosen by the Father in Christ, predestined for adoption according to the praise of his glorious grace. And we have redemption through the blood of Christ that was according to the mystery of God's will and for these very purposes so that we hope in Christ and we do so to the praise of his glory. That's everything that Paul is just saying at the the top of his voice in Ephesians chapter 1. Or as he would say in Romans 5, Christians, as we are those who have now been justified by faith, Having peace with God, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. When we consider the fact that God saves sinners, we ought to immediately be provoked to rejoice, not only in the manner in which he does it, through the death of his son, but in the simple fact that he would do such a thing that would provoke us to say, glory to God. Because when we are truly convinced that our salvation is by grace alone, that it comes through faith alone, then we cannot think of anything greater than God's glory alone and how all of those fit together. 
This news brings glory to God. And it brings peace to earth. It's interesting that the subject of peace is so central to all four of the Gospels. A quick search, I think, comes up with 20 some odd times, 25 times in the four Gospels that peace is spoken of. Luke uses it 14 times. He takes up over half of those. He likes to talk about peace. And as equally as important as the subject, it's the significant occasions that Luke chooses to spotlight peace. There's three significant moments in his gospel when peace suddenly gets this spotlight to help us understand his narrative. Here, at Jesus' birth. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Shows up in a very significant moment in Luke 19 as the worshiping pilgrims seek peace and proclaim peace at Jesus' triumphal entry. Do you remember that? As they were there saying, talking about these things, excuse me, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest in Luke 19. As Jesus rides into the city, only to eventually be betrayed, arrested, and crucified, Luke spotlights that that triumphal entry has everything to do with peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then what does Jesus say at the end of Luke's gospel in Luke 24? What does he announce to his disciples after the resurrection? Whilst they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and he said, Peace to you. Luke 24. It's by this as if Luke is saying, The peace of heaven has come down to earth through the death and resurrection of Christ. If you want to understand this good news, O Theophilus, you better understand something about this peace that has come from heaven to earth, and brings glory to God. The enmity between God and man is now reconciled through the provision of Christ, and it's given to God's people. And so what this means is that the peace that we need is not merely the peace between nations. It's not simply the peace between our extended family members that we wonder if will ever happen. It's not merely the subjective peace that you and I experience through relaxation or retirement. It's a peace that comes through the reconciling of God and man. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. On this particular night, the angels announced that peace has come to earth. But it comes among those whom God is pleased. Did you notice that? Peace on earth among those whom he is pleased. So this leads us to ask really the most important question you could ever ask. Is God pleased with you? Maybe that's a question you don't want to ask. Sometimes the most important questions are the ones that we try to avoid. Is God pleased with you? 
Later, Jesus is going to be baptized by John. The Holy Spirit is going to descend, and the Father is going to audibly speak from heaven and announce, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's Luke chapter 3. In that particular moment, in that baptism, Jesus is stepping in line to identify with sinners. He has no sin to confess, but he is identifying himself with those who are most certainly saying, I have sin. I repent of this sin. And in this, the Father is pleased. The Father is pleased with his Son identifying himself with sinners. The Father is pleased with his sinless Son stepping in line with those being numbered among the transgressors. My Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So the one in whom God is pleased are the very ones who put their faith faith in this same Son. The Father is pleased with the Son and those who say that Son is the one who's come to save the Christ, the Savior, the Lord. The Father is well pleased with those very same ones. To believe that Jesus is the one whom the Father has sent brings great pleasure to the Father for welcoming the Son. And so from this, what we can say is that the peace of God then comes to those who rest in the Son of God in being their substitutionary sacrifice. Now the key here to knowing this peace is to not separate what the angels have joined together. The glory of God and the peace that we long for. What this means is that the peace of God can never be separated from God himself. God will not give you peace apart from himself because true peace does not exist apart from him. God's purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious one in your life. Glory to God, peace to men. Or let me say it this way, if you want the peace of God to rule in your life, God must rule in your life. Friends, this is true not only in how we first come to Christ, but also in our ongoing communion with him. Our ongoing experience of peace is no different than our initial discovery of peace. Christian, you at one point heard this glorious good news that God has sent his son to be a savior, and you understood for the first time, do you think of that moment? That first time that you experienced peace, knowing that you are reconciled with God through the blood of his son. That initial experience of how you encountered peace, it does not change in your communion with him for how many ever years or decades that you walk with him. You and I will experience peace to the same degree that we see him as glorious. They're not disconnected. Think about it. If you see this God as partially in control of things, then you're only going to know partial peace. If you see this God to be only somewhat gracious, and you must also appease him just somewhat, then you will only know partial peace. If you see him as the heavenly father who sometimes does good, 
then you will only know peace sometimes. This means then that the areas in which you and I lack peace are the exact areas where we're failing to see him as glorious. Glory to God, peace among men. Because if we believe that he really isn't good enough, great enough, or gracious enough, then guess what? We become anxious, angry, or apathetic. But friend, God desires to meet you in the midst of your circumstances in order to reveal himself to be so glorious so that you can rest in who he is and what he's provided in the Son so that you know this peace experientially. So what we celebrate in this Christmas season is the same truth that's proclaimed in all of Scripture. Good news, great joy, because God is faithful to his word and that peace has come to his people. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. May God continue to work in our lives so graciously and kindly that we might rest in and rejoice in this very thing. Our Father, we thank you for the good news that has come to us that announces to us not only who you are, but what you've given to us in your Son. Lord, we pray that you would give us not only great clarity on how this peace and joy come to our lives, but that, Father, you would give us this great experience of resting in your Son that you have provided for us. Lord, especially in this time of year, as we hear often of these familiar themes of peace and joy, even angels' announcements, Lord, would you cause your word to be effectual among us that it might produce the very thing that you have intended that it would as we rest and rejoice in your Son. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.